So I'm just going to give you a heads up and know that um, the sermon this week was pretty rough on old Pastor Joe as he was writing it. So just keep that in mind. This week, we're continuing with uh, our series. This is week number 42 on the Gospel of Mark. I've titled this message, Kingdom Ambition. So most of life here on earth has an ambitious nature to it. And I'm not just talking about being ambitious for success. Sometimes we're ambitious for people's sympathy. Sometimes we're ambitious for attention. Sometimes we are ambitious to be cut off from everyone. But ambition is a goal that you want, whatever that goal may be. And ambition permeates every part of your life. For most of us, our ambitious nature does not motivate us to serve other people, but ambition actually is a motivation to win or to establish some sort of pecking order in some culture. We compete with siblings. We compete with friends. We compete at our jobs. We compete in our professions. We compete in business. It feeds our pride, excuse me, our arrogance, and it fights against our humility because humility is not viewed as a virtue in our culture, at least not really. Some people talk a good game about humility, but it's really just a fashion statement more than a reality. Nations aren't given power in the United Nations because of humility, for example. Did you know that? Raises aren't given on Wall Street. Man, you know what? You were very humble this year at Goldman Sachs. We're going to give you a 30% increase. The world doesn't have a merit system for humility. The nightly news doesn't talk about the stunning humility on a scale of 1 to 10 for politicians, unless they have good marketing. (laughs) But they do have a merit system for success. The world only gives lip service to humility. And why is that? Because the natural human spirit has a heart that is bent towards self-promotion or self-preservation or self-worship or adulation. And we consciously, we constantly are either consciously or subconsciously attempting to fulfill those three ambition, ambitious drives, self-promotion, self-preservation, or self-worship. And we judge people whose opinions are different, whose goals are contrary to ours, like, for example, in politics, because humility, abandoning ambition is not natural. We need intervention to accomplish that. So let's look at the passage today from Mark chapter 9, starting with verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. Are you shocked by that, by the way, for those that have been with us? The disciples did not understand and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? Like he didn't know, right? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was about to be the greatest in the next kingdom. And he sat down and he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, 
he said to them, <clears throat> whoever receives such child, one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, but teacher, we saw some, 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 someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let's look at the historical part of this passage. It's still a taboo topic. This whole idea of Jesus dying is a taboo topic, but it is a relentless message. He keeps hammering them through Right? I mean, it's been unbelievable. Just like every sermon in the last, what, seven weeks has been about this. <clears throat> it's a pretty intense trip up and down Mount Tabor. We had the transfiguration, then at the mountain bottom, we had the, 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 the demon-possessed boy, that whole scene from last week. And now Jesus is actually starting the trek toward Jerusalem, where he's going to die. His public ministry in Galilee is over, so he's passing through Galilee secretly, his hometown, but he continues to teach his disciples about the cross and the resurrection. And he gives a little more detail this time that he hasn't given before. He says, I'm going to be delivered. He uses a word delivered that is really problematic. It's the Greek word paradidomai. It means to transmit, deliver, to give up or over, to put in prison. <clears throat> this is a legal word. It's like turn him in, rat him out, arrested. It's a word often used regarding Jesus, a legal term indicated being handed over to a government for criminal prosecution. Jesus is saying, listen, soon I'm going to be arrested, tried, convicted, and executed for my crimes. But three days I will rise again. See, we already knew he was going to be rejected, right, by the scribes, the Pharisees and the elders of Israel, the religious people. We knew they wanted to kill him. <clears throat> but he is now declaring that as king of the universe, he will be under the thumb of earthly human legal authority. Wait, what? He's talking about a very taboo topic of the suffering Messiah, and he's adding a new legal twist. They are following who is soon to be a very well-known criminal. It's the antithesis of the kingdom ambition that these disciples want him to pursue. They want him to overthrow authority, not be sentenced to death by it. And the disciples, they still don't get it. They're about to face humiliation, ridicule, potential huge, massive legal jeopardy, punishable by death and castigation, and you know what? They don't even want to talk about it. It's not that they are afraid to ask Jesus what he means by being delivered. They know what the word means. They're just afraid of the topic. Messiah turned over to Rome to be prosecuted for a crime, killed by the religious leaders. No way. No, uh-uh. It is so frightening, they have decided they're not going to even entertain the discussion. That's what it means when they said, when it says they were scared to ask. So what do they do? Because they're in complete utter denial, they start debating the absolute opposite. And it's an outrageous conversation. They're walking through Galilee to Capernaum, and they go to Peter's house, back at Pete's house. And they're debating 
who will be first in the kingdom on the way. <clears throat> the Lord has just spoken to them about his humiliation, and all they can think about is their own exaltation. What could cause this seemingly outlandish discussion, you say? One that almost makes you scoff at their foolishness, right? Like, man, these disciples are total idiots. Understand, this is all still about their passion for a return to glory for Israel, overthrowing and replacing Rome. And they still don't want to hear the message that Jesus is hammering with them every day. They expect Messiah to display earthly power at any moment. And they, obviously, right there, his closest friends, they're his closest followers, they've been there from the beginning. They're going to have some sort of advantage, right? They're going to share in the glory and the power right with him. And they want to know what the pecking order is. They were excited about the exaltation of their Messiah and by default them. Each time Jesus says that he would have to die, they close their ears and they don't want to hear it. It is complete denial. It was just bizarre talk that they would just dismiss. But obviously they have a lot to learn. <clears throat> they still can't let go of these visions of grandeur. They need a lesson in brokenness and humility. What, again? Now these disciples, they needed to learn this humility just like we do. Even though we are believers, we still have our resident pride, powerfully exalting ourselves, and we fight against that in our spiritual walk all the time. They need this lesson, and they need it quick. Their arrogance needs to be reined in. Their natural human pride needs to be assaulted. So they get to Peter's house. Mark says they're in the house. So they're very relaxed. They're at home. They've got the lazy boy up. They're watching ESPN. Jesus saunters into the den. Hey, what were you talking about on the road? You know, the part that you were talking about, you thought you were out of my earshot. I hear everything, guys. You should know that by now. They don't want to tell him what they were talking about. It's embarrassing. It's like being caught by a parent. Honestly, it's how I was feeling this week as I wrote this sermon. I'm being real. Jesus knows they have a lot more to learn. So he begins a section of teaching about humility that they must hear. So let's talk about the spiritual. What about Jesus? What is he doing? Why and how does he do it? I want to talk about pursuing kingdom success. He sees Jesus does this huge need to define for these men what success really is. What the kingdom looks like. And it's nothing like they think. They need to be taught that their pride is infecting how they view themselves individually and how they view their little group. You want to be first? You want honor in my kingdom? Is that what you really want? That's what they're all debating. And Jesus is about to drop some humility science. He's about to explain three steps they must take. Three steps they must do. They have to abandon two things, and then they have to embrace a third thing. Talk about personal ambition. It takes a little child, Jesus does, and he puts this child on his lap, and he begins to explain how they have it all wrong. This little child is just as important in my kingdom as any of you are. 
What does this mean? See, being a child in this time was very hard. It's not like children's life today. Yes, there are children who suffer, <clears throat> but for the most part, society tries to shield them from hardship. And there are some kids who go through difficult times, but it was far worse then on a far greater level. Kids then were constantly, I mean constantly, more than 50% of the time, abandoned by parents that didn't care for them. Or many times, because the mortality rate was so high, their parents just died. And these kids are left alone to fend for themselves. It is estimated by many that more than half of the children that were alive during these times lived without parents on the streets, and they were not considered precious. Being an adult was much easier than being a child, although it was still hard. The streets were filled with orphans, fending for themselves. Children in the street didn't represent power, honor, accomplishment. No, children on the street were dirty, filthy annoyances. They're foolish. They're vulnerable, open to being taken advantage of in all sorts of ways. Children have nothing to offer socially, economically, politically, theologically. They are pawns subject to abuse. This was the life of most children during this time. Outside of their mothers, often the dads didn't take any responsibility. If you were a kid, for the most part, you were an afterthought. It is why Paul used the term orphan to describe our spiritual condition. Historically, it would have been a very powerful image for his readers. So Jesus says, you're so concerned with where your standing will be in the kingdom on the halls of power and influence, I'll tell you, you should really be concerned with your standing among the weakest in our society, these orphans, these children. He makes it very clear, your connection with celebrities, the powerful, that's meaningless in his kingdom. How you deal with the weak, that's what the kingdom of heaven is about. These men were debating who's going to be the most powerful. And Jesus says, in his kingdom, it's the kids. It's the servants. But surely, Jesus doesn't mean total servanthood, right? Certainly there is some sort of pecking order. If not among us individually, okay, Jesus, we get it. No one person is more important than another. But certainly we, as a group of disciples, we have some sort of authority or superiority, correct? We've got something. means just a corporate ambition. So since Jesus has obliterated their personal kingdom ambitions, John is searching. He's saying, yeah, I got that wrong, but now I've got a problem, right? He's looking for something to hang on to. Maybe Jesus wants us as a group to be successful. Hopefully, right? Not as individual. We need to be servants. We get that, Jesus. But we're a pretty powerful group. He brings up a group he remembers were casting out evil in Jesus' name, but they weren't walking with them. John says, we did the right thing, right, Jesus, trying to stop that group because they're not with us. They aren't paying the price of following you like we are. John wants to hold on to some sort of authority, some sort of exclusivity, since individual ambition has been blasted Maybe corporate exclusivity 
still exists. Teacher, we saw someone. So let me stop right there. I want you to understand. John is having a conscience bug him. He's super sensitive, John, here. He's smitten. And he says, if we can't be competing against one another, surely we as a group are superior to other outside groups, right? And Jesus' response is just, ugh, bring them water. So Jesus makes it clear, guys, you aren't superior because you follow me on foot. You aren't better than others who believe just because we are personal friends. I don't respect one over another. Not only are you not to stop those outside groups, not only is your group not superior, you are to do whatever you can to equip them. Give them water in my name. Now, let me explain. They knew what he meant by water. Water was a very precious commodity in this region. It was not easily accessible. To give someone a cup of water, it doesn't mean you just go to the sink, get a little paper or Dixie cup, walk it over to the living room, and give it to them. You went to the well. You filled a big, heavy bucket or two. You walk a mile. You let them dip their cup in till it's empty. You go back and you do it again because they're doing the important work. They need to be sustained because it's a hot region. It's a desert region. They've got to have water. It's very rare in those areas. No, there is no indoor plumbing. There's no public water fountains. There's a well. People are going to it all day, every day, bringing water to the important people who are working, maybe even people who are inside governing. He doesn't mean bring them a cup of water from the sink. Go get water, boy. It's maybe where that term water boy originated because a lot of the people who did this were young. And they were also women. It's carrying huge, heavy vessels to people so they can dip a cup, drink, while doing important work. Those on water duty would be the least important. He says, not only are you not to stop them, you should go on water duty, guys. Mostly it would be women and children serving the important workers, which, of course, in that day would be the men who are hard at work. Jesus says, you know what? Individually, you're children. Corporately, you're water boys. If they're casting out even on my name, don't stop them. Relentlessly, all day, serve them. Just like you would serve me. Such a hard lesson to hear for them, isn't it? All this time, sacrificing, walking, facing ridicule, the storms in the boat. Remember those? <clears throat> Jesus loving Gentiles publicly. You're telling us we've witnessed all that. And we're no better than any individual or group. We don't get any glory in the kingdom. All right, so let's look at the personal side. I've titled this, Pastor Joe Hates This Sermon. <laughs> it's true. He does. I asked him. This was the social media campaign this week. How much of our kingdom activity is secretly motivated by our own personal ambition? I got to tell you, I did not like what Jesus was teaching me in this passage this week. None of it. 
it struck right at my heart of pride, revealing my own disgusting self-righteousness, my own arrogance on much of my very own kingdom work. I got to tell you, I find myself obsessed with kingdom ambition, writing books, preaching sermons, trying to build a bigger, better church. And honestly, as I was writing this sermon, it was heartbreaking for me this week as it forced me into reevaluation. And about Thursday afternoon, it was a little overwhelming. So I moved to Psalms for three days. (laughs) I'm going to put Philippians 2, 3 through 8 up there, which is in one of my books, by the way. I wrote it. (laughs) Available on Amazon.com. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also bringing water to others, if you'll allow me to change that a bit. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or attained, but he emptied himself by taking the form of what? A water boy, a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, kingdom ambition forces you to look out for your own interests, even though they might be Christian, and your own needs, things you demand from a church. I want good worship. I want good youth ministry. I want good children's ministry. Kingdom ambition obsesses over moral outrage, political purity, social correctness, judging others who have a different opinion than you. What are you, an idiot? Ambition thinks nothing of criticizing other brothers and sisters, judging them instead of working all day to bring them water. In fact, we often expect them to bring us water. I'm thirsty. Give me what I need. I mean, we are important after all, aren't we? What's the goal of of kingdom ambition? You know what the goal is of kingdom ambition? You know what you want? You want comfort, fellowship, affection, and mercy. Nothing wrong with those things. We love those things. They're good things, and they are promised to us by Jesus. And you know what else happens? We actually truly fall in love with people or groups that give us those things, don't we? Kingdom ambition. But it's not really love at that point. At that point, it's an appetite for comfort, fellowship, affection, and mercy. It is actually kingdom ambition. Ambition won't provide for other individuals or groups, unless, in return, those groups provide us comfort, fellowship, affection, and mercy. Kingdom ambition is judgmental. It's comparative. It's demeaning. Kingdom ambition is self-promoting. It's an aggressive spiritual cancer in the body of a church family. Kingdom ambition 
embraces unity if that unity helps us with self-promotion, self-preservation, and self-affirmation. Kingdom ambition stands up for what's ours, fights for a higher standing, a better ranking. You know what else kingdom ambition loves? It loves very slick marketing, good graphics. So you can see why I was really struggling this week. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is where I came down. See, the thing about arrogance, unlike much of our sinfulness, arrogance is very hard to keep secret. (laughs) Right? I mean, that's the whole point. It always reveals itself because we want to promote. Remember the story of Mary and Martha serving together, the two sisters? Martha was serving religiously, and she was angry at Mary, who was sitting at Jesus' feet. Full of pride and judgment, Martha was. How do we get a handle on this natural, personal, and corporate human ambition and pride? How can we recognize it? And if we are honest... We can admit all of us have some level of kingdom ambition. I'm not even talking about worldly ambition. I'm talking about kingdom of God ambition. I know I sure do. Sometimes that ambition that we want is sympathy. So it can be sort of like, you know, self-deprecating ambition. People wanting to see that you're struggling or hurting. You know how it starts getting rid of this natural thing? It starts with letting go. Letting go of what you think you need to attain for being a part of the kingdom. What you need to accomplish for it. So what am I asking you to do today? Well, I'm going to show you with my own confession. I will sincerely demonstrate to you today what we, what you must do to make sure kingdom ambition isn't infecting our church. I'm not doing this for a show, for some teachable moment, for some gimmick or dramatic effect. What I am going to do is a confession. It's one that I need to make. I've made it, and now I need to make it publicly. All of us need it. A confession that much of what we do for the kingdom is often for our own benefit. Man, we need to humbly evaluate. You guys have heard me pray. God never works because of us. He always works in spite of us. I never knew that more this week than ever before. See, what I want for us as a church and as individuals is to be freed from this ridiculous burden of kingdom ambition so that we can bask in the grace that he gives that we so desperately need. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me a little bit of last week. I believe... Help me with my unbelief. It really is like a one big flowing pericope, one big teaching area, is it not? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for how you used this passage in my life this week. Showing me that when I'm working on sermons, when I'm doing Grace Life Recovery, when I'm talking with people who are going through a hard time, 
I sure do like the appreciation and the adulation. I like it when people say, great sermon, Joe. I like it when people buy my books. Lord, I don't know how in the world it so easily creeps in, but I confess to you that kingdom ambition is at my door constantly. My human heart loves marketing, self-promotion, self-preservation. Lord, I, 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 don't want, I don't want our church to follow their pastor's example in this. You made me uncomfortable this week, and I'm thankful for it. I'd like a week off, <laughs> but I'm thankful that for this week, you did not give me a week off. And I pray for individuals in here who might be struggling with kingdom ambition and don't even know it. I pray that you would reveal it, you would point it out, and with humbleness, you would give us grace. That you would give us the courage to come to you in prayer. I believe. Help me with my unbelief and empty me of kingdom ambition. Lord, we want to relentlessly serve you. We do. We're going to ask that you do a miracle and make our motives pure because we confess to you often they are not. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we go, <clears throat> wanted to say one more thing. Uh, one of our dear sisters, a grace lifer from day one, Mamie, uh, lost her husband this morning uh, on a heart attack. It was unexpected. It was sudden. She's asked for prayer for her family, for her boys, Alex and Nick. Please be in prayer for them. I'm going to pray for them really quick. Father, I lift up our sister to you. I lift up Nick and Alex. I pray that you would give them comfort and love and peace during this horrible time. I pray that you would surround them with people that care for them. Give us insight and wisdom as a church to know what we need to do to comfort them. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We love all of you. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week. If you need anything, let us know.